G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We can't help but be inspired when archaeologists make new discoveries that bring the Bible narrative to life. There's lots of evidence coming to light as archaeologists work diligently in Israel and more broadly surrounding the Middle East. Well, a focus today on new evidences that the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have been found. What's more, this evidence demonstrates that the Bible provides an accurate eyewitness account of events that occurred southeast of the Dead Sea over 4,000 years ago. Our special guest over this next hour, Dr. Brendan Roach. He's founder and president of the Bible teaching ministry called Acts, A-X-X. And one of Brendan's central passions includes a focus on archaeology, having studied with some of the best biblical archaeologists in Israel. Brendan Roach, let me say a special welcome back to 2020. It's great to be back here with you again, Neil. Hey, Brendan, Sodom and Gomorrah, new evidence, the destruction of Sodom. Let's talk about this in general, and perhaps we might even need to account some of the details from the Scripture for just getting the context here for listeners. But there's been some pretty exciting developments of late. Yeah, we've seen a new archaeological site uh, open up about 15 years ago, and they've been, and the archaeologists of uh, a couple of Bible-believing guys, which is becoming a bit of a rarity in archaeology these days, actually always believed it was the site of Sodom, and it's in Jordan, and the Jordanians eventually gave them permission to start excavating. And in 2021, they had published in a scientific journal that this site was hit by an airburst. All right. Now, that's going to be, no doubt, important for a conversation because when we talk about fire and brimstone from coming from heaven uh, caused by God, uh, people will be very interested as we get into that. But, but before we do, let's talk about uh, you know the unfolding of these events because obviously this is an ancient city we're talking about, Sodom. And uh, people obviously knew where it was culturally in their time. Somehow or other it gets uh, overwhelmed and buried. And so it's disappeared and then things come back to life when someone discovers ancient remnants. Uh, Give us your insights here as an archaeologist of the sorts of ways that these things come to light. Well, the the area that we're talking about there, if, you, if you've had a trip to Israel, you would come down from the place, Pisag, where, where Moses overlooks into the Promised Land. And you can see the Dead Sea from there, and you can see the, the Jordan River Valley. And back at that time, it was one of the most fertile parts of Israel. You go there today, today as a tourist, 
And yes, you'll still see a lot of agriculture in the area, but it's all being fed by the Jordan River and other water sources. And it looks like just basically a desert that somehow or other they've been able to grow crops in. But in the ancient world, it was the most fertile part of that region, which is why Lot says to Abraham, that's the part that I want. I want the good part for myself. And then we know the story Abraham goes up in, into what we know today as Israel, into the mountains and, and is greatly blessed by God. So it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating area, fascinating part of the world. Abraham goes up into Israel. Lot says, those are fertile plains. I think we can make a dollar if we go and pitch our tents there. He goes south and uh, he's there at a part of uh, the world, uh, which, as I understand it, and you can confirm this, Brendan, that Sodom was considered to be like 10 times larger than Jerusalem, five times larger than Jericho. So the the settlements there in this very fertile plain were pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, the, the cities were incredibly significant. I was just doing a little bit more reviewing this morning before I spoke to you, and I was even surprised by one of the articles that I found that estimates 50,000 people lived in Sodom. Um, you know, and these were, you know, 50,000 is just an incredibly large city for that period of time because you're going to have to have the agriculture to be able to sustain that. It just organically grows because it's such a, a rich, fertile environment. You've got to have plenty of water in the ancient world. There's no taps. There's no pipes. So all of the things that sustain a city, yes, Jerusalem's a small city, um, you've got a couple of other small cities, but it's just at the beginning of that region starting to explode into what we understand the Old Testament and the growth of Joshua and the expansion of the cities all starts to explode as a population. But before that actually happens, this is the major city, which is why Collins, the archaeologist, for 17 years petitioned the Jordanian government because this was a huge unexcavated site that he, that he thought for a long time was the city of Sodom. When we say the word Sodom, uh, let's bring this into a context because a lot of people will think if you're going to be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, somehow or other this must be a specially refined uh, or intentional conversation that's going to draw attention to the homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah because they're famous or infamous for their morality. There is a sense here in which uh, some people are particularly interested in Sodom and Gomorrah because of the morality issues. When you're looking at that as a archaeologist, how do you see things? Because there's obviously bigger dimensions even in play. Well, well, yeah, I mean, from, from a biblical historian, archaeologist, I think when we see major destructions occur, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, we see the destruction of the second temple post the New Testament period. There is always those massive destructions that are seen to be linked to the will and purpose of God is always somehow linked to a morality issue um, in the destruction of Jerusalem, both in the Bible and both in Josephus. It tells us that child, not child sacrifice, but child consumption Literally, people were eating their own children. So there's there's a point there when sin and morality gets so bad that destruction, total destruction comes in. Now, so somehow or other, 
that only happens a few times in biblical history. Sodom and Gomorrah fit into that category. So something is going on which is so distressing to God that there is no other solution, even the grace of God being expressed with the saving of a handful of people. So that's that's the bigger picture that we see going on biblically. At the risk of taking us off on a tangent, and so let's not spend a lot of time on this, but I'm even thinking of a time then we, when we, we look to the future, uh, biblical prophetic accounts, uh, God's intervention, and sometimes when people are thinking of the biblical account of the rapture or thinking forward to the second coming, uh, there's an intervention of God then. And uh, I can't help but note uh, one scholar who suggests when you're thinking about when God might intervene, he says it could be a pre-wrath time, a pre-wrath rapture. Now, uh, just uh, introducing that in that maybe as a red herring, but there is a sense here in which I can see something of a bit of a type here. Things get so bad... God intervenes, and he intervenes by destruction. Is that something that even could be something of a type of what might be ahead? Uh, I'm I'm probably of of the view that every hundred years in society and culture, we, we see humanity become so depraved in one way or another that we feel like God's going to come back. How can this go unpunished, basically? You know, there was a great sense of that during the, you know, the First and Second World War, that the Roman Empire was was so so depraved. Slavery at different points of history has been so depraved and such an abuse of humanity. What we see around the around the world, if I can be so blunt, with the rising rate of abortion, I think is an an abomination against God, and it just seems to be we're seeing a little bit of a pullback of that or trying to be pulled back at that at the moment. So in history, we, we see the worst of humanity. We see the best of God. And I think it's there to keep us very close to that sense. You know, this is so bad that one, we need to do something. And two, God could, could, could be coming back at any moment. Well, an historic act of God in the past, if we can understand some of the detail about that, that actually helps us in the present or even thinking about the future as to how historic acts of God might work. And so uh, let's talk about the way you've focused on some of this new detail. Uh, there is an excavation called Tel El Hammam. And I guess in the last 20 years, there's been huge developments and as more things have been uncovered. Uh, give us your insights here into the way this discovery has come about as we talk about how that fire and brimstone image might be appearing. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I follow what's ha- happening in the archaeological world. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. I just came back from Africa and had half a day off and took myself off to the British Museum to, to have a look at some of the biblical artefacts there. So there's a, but I, I, I stumbled, for want of a better word, across uh, Steve Collins and what he was doing. And just originally it was just, hey, I found this site. I think it's Sodom. Have a look at this pottery. Have a look at these walls. Have a look at this destruction. Fairly normal archaeological stuff, which is only exciting to archaeological geeks like myself. And then suddenly they became a little bit more bolder about this evidence that they discovered, which we would call an airburst. And just to give you an idea what an airburst is, an airburst is actually a meteorite 
maybe anywhere from the size of a car to the size of a house that comes through the atmosphere and then it explodes with great heat. And the, the evidence that they've accumulated for this site, they believe it's equivalent to a thousand times the Hiroshima nuclear explosion. So that's what an airburst is. This is what scientists say. They've got evidence of this happening in Russia earlier on, uh, sorry, about 100 years ago. So they've, they, they know what happened. They've got evidence of it. They've got many small events. So we're sort of hitting the, the biblical account and they're saying, hang on, we think we've got something here, but we're not experts in, we're archaeologists, we're not experts in science. So they got over 20 different scientists to come and examine what they have found and their conclusion in a peer-reviewed journal article published on the 20th September 2021 was that an airburst destroyed Tal al-Hammam, a middle-aged Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. I, I, I'm just blown away by that, how we can have independent scientists who aren't biblical believers going, hang on, we've got evidence for this thing happening here. So it takes us into a whole new realm because I'm fairly cautious about these discoveries. Christians too often over the journey have claimed they've discovered things like Noah's Ark and it's been a fake. So I just sit back and wait. But when we've got 21 scientists in a peer-reviewed journal article coming out saying, here we have this fire falling from heaven, <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. It's fantastic. A biblical perspective on life culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation today. It is a fascinating discussion about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going back around 4,000 years to a place that's southeast of the Dead Sea, and our very special guest, Dr. Brendan Roach, who's the founder and president of the Bible teaching ministry called Axe, A-X-X. He's just returned from Africa. Martin will talk some more about that, but uh, he's done some studies alongside some of the best archaeologists, biblical archaeologists. Hey, Brendan, uh, we'll take some calls shortly, but uh, come back to this airburst. Some people are going to say, well, that sounds a little bit odd. Uh, Peer-reviewed, 20 scientists all saying this is likely to be what happened. Others have suggested there's been an earthquake around that time and that there's some petroleum and gases that were already existent that must have somehow or other burst into flames. Uh, there are going to be different theories about how these cities might be destroyed. Your thoughts on, on the fact that there are different theories? Yeah, and, and I think this is one of my... Um archaeology teachers was Hillel Giva, who um, is one of the, what's known as the Jerusalem Three Archaeologists, and you find his image on the Cardo wall. He's extremely famous Jerusalem archaeologist. He said, well, the more that we find out, the more questions that we have. So one, what this is actually doing, be, before now, how do you describe what the Bible says in Genesis 19.24, the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, before we had this sort of theory and, and idea, the only thing that made logical sense was because that Sodom and Gomorrah and the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea is, a, is in a location, a geo, 
geographical location known as the Rift Valley. So it's a tear in the Earth's surface. So it's it's a it's a crack where you know normally volcanoes or active volcanoes around the world would appear in these locations. So when we look at that, we go, well, okay, so there's been an explosion of ash, volcanic eruption, and that's the fire and sulfur that's coming down is is being created by this. And that was the I think the only reasonable and logical answer that we had before the discovery and the confirmation of this airburst. So when people were looking at it, you're trying to come up with something that's described over three and a half thousand years ago and trying to put it into a context of our understanding. And there's definitely evidence for volcanic activity and ash in the area, which is certainly what drove this conclusion. Now we have new evidence of an airburst that's so strong it melted pottery. That and and suddenly it it fits in a little bit more with then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from heaven. I mean, it could even possibly be a combination of the two. So it just gives us more and more questions. But I look at this and I'm going, this just fits the biblical account so perfectly. But people 20, 30, 50 years ago, an earthquake looking at the region made entire scientific sense as well. So it's just another another piece of the puzzle, I suppose we can say. As you say, melting pottery, and uh, as I read some detail a little earlier, some bubbled mud brick, uh, partially melting building materials, the sort of heat we're talking about here. Uh, mm. One thought that I read was somewhere around 2,000 degrees Celsius, uh, like as hot mm-hmm. as a blast furnace. That's the sort of heat you're talking about, and, and I guess there'd be scientists who'd be able to to say whether you know what you've got to do to get that sort of heat, but but the the, the airburst idea gives that sort of heat for melting all of those building materials. Yeah, and that's certainly what the journal article and the scientists didn't. I won't go into the technical aspects of it. I almost sent myself to sleep reading it. <laughs> and but there's they went through and they literally they went okay, we're going to test it here. Oh, that's not hot enough. Let's get something else. That's not hot enough. Let's get something else. And I guess kept on trying to crank up the temperature to get these melting points and these these effects. And then they came to the conclusion, well, it's got to be above 2,000 degrees Celsius because just in the small testing that they'd done, um, well, they that group of scientists didn't... They, they need to go to very, very expensive <laughs> uh, furnaces or something to be able to test beyond those heats. And they went, well, we can't go any higher, but we know that the melting points of pottery and bricks and are above that temperature so yeah i mean it's just phenomenal and the and the sandy surfaces as it hit actually then melted it into glass so i've contacted steve collins and he's invited me to come out and visit the site and i am looking because the site's covered in it apparently so i'm looking forward to getting a little bit of that glass and Sneaking it, hopefully no one from Jordanian or Israeli customs is listening and I'm going to smuggle it out of the country, which is technically illegal, but I don't think they'll miss one little bit of this off the ground. (laughs) They'll have to get the podcast to have that evidence of your confession. The Bible and accuracy of eyewitness accounts. Just come back to this here for a moment because sometimes people... And there'll be even Christians, uh, long-time mature believers who have sort of doubts about some of the archaeological discoveries and some of those incredible stories uh, through the Old Testament and the New. 
but the accuracy yeah. that comes to light when we start to hear these sorts of discoveries and have the hearts and minds of experts who are who are uh, you know making uh, all sorts of theories around these things and the way they could have happened this is a powerful thing isn't it to understand the accuracy of the bible yeah i mean you just go across the other side of the jordan river and you've got jericho and there is absolutely clear evidence for the collapse of the wall at jericho and so what a what a some biblical archaeologists believe I'll, I'll call them believers and non-believers i don't know why a non-believer would study biblical archaeology but they do um they just argue about the time frame they don't argue about the event they actually argue about the time frame so uh, I think we can see that we go to more recent, well, not recent history, older history, that being the city of Nineveh. Classic example. Here's a city that it, that those city walls, 30 miles, I think it's described as, if I remember correctly, 30 miles, 30 kilometers, where they could ride four chariots wide across the walls to encompass the city up until 150 years ago had not been found. And they went, this is a made-up city. How could a city this big not be discovered? Well, they've discovered it, and you can go to the British Museum, you can go to uh, the museum in Istanbul, and you can see all the artefacts from Nineveh, uh, many of them, spectacular ones there. And and again, you know, it's... Uh, again, one of my, my archaeology teachers said to me, absence of evidence evidence is not evidence of absence in other words just because we haven't found something doesn't mean it's not there so for example just because we haven't found evidence chariot wheels or something in the red sea concrete evidence does not mean that that never occurred doesn't mean it never happened so we we net so we get excited when we get confirming evidence which this is this is confirming evidence and this was such a large, such a large event. I'm just looking through my notes. Such a large event that it covered hundreds and hundreds of hectares uh, that it covered in in this of the area. So even even if this wasn't Sodom, this covered a large region. So maybe Sodom was close by, but we haven't discovered it yet. We haven't found it yet. But it's certainly, oh, here it is, 570,000 square metres, an area of 1.5 kilometre width and 1.5 metres of burnt debris. So one and a half kilometres width this destruction went over. This is not a small isolated event. Um, and it went for, for several kilometres as well. But, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Now, uh, you might correct my biblical history here, but when Lot fled Sodom and uh, he said to the angels who were with him, uh, I can't climb that mountain because, you know, I'm getting too old. Uh, I'm, going to, mm. I'm going to go to a smaller town. I think it's called Zoar. And mm-hmm. uh, I might have that wrong, but um, but if if uh, right. archaeologists could find Zoar intact and not destroyed by the same sort of uh, intense heat, that also would be evidence for the biblical account, wouldn't it? Yeah, and uh, and there's a, there's a special group of archaeologists, biblical historians who study the geography um, of the region, and and Zohar. From, from one article that I was reading, and there's several different potential places for Zohar, we don't have an absolute location. It's very difficult to get an absolute location unless you get some 
uh, piece of pottery, some document which is very hard for thousands of years old, some engraving that says this is the city of Zohar. Uh, it's very difficult to be exact about that. But there appears to be a city of Zohar. Again, if you think about the Dead Sea and it's that sort of peanut shape, and as the Dead Sea, the north and south parts of it come together, that's where they think that Zohar potentially was. There's a, there's a city that uh, has a very similar name in Arabic. And if you basically go back 200 years and if it had a consistent history of being inhabited, which a lot of these cities do, it might only be a couple of families or something, then they tend to keep the same name. And it, and it goes from a, maybe a Philistine name to a Jewish name to an Arabic name. So they have slightly different pronunciations. But you go, oh, yeah, that's... That's the um, the Arabic version of the Philistine name. That's the Hebrew version of the Arabic name, whatever. Uh, so there's there's definitely a, a town. It's definitely close by, and there's some people who are who are academically confident, but no one can say definitely. So there's two or three potential locations. Everybody agrees that Zohar's in the region. That's that's a consistent. Brendan, just a couple of minutes out to news, uh, just talking about archaeologists for a few moments. You mentioned early in our conversation uh, that you know a lot of archaeologists are not biblical archaeologists, don't necessarily, they're not there looking for the evidence of the Bible and its truth. But there's a certain scepticism that I imagine that even if you are a biblical archaeologist, you have to be a skeptic uh, when you are discovering new uh, artifacts and things like that. Give us your insights here into the fact that we might say to every listener, you know, this is good reason not to be skeptical about the things that you might read as an accurate account in the Bible. But but when you're searching for these things, you've got to be wearing a skeptic's hat. You can't believe everything that you think and find. Yeah, I mean... You you're literally digging literally digging in the dirt, and you're finding remnants of ancient civilizations. You're quite often finding walls and floors and maybe some mosaics or you know pottery. Pottery is the big thing. Pottery is everywhere in in Israel and in the biblical. You know it doesn't disintegrate, so it lasts a long time. And and so you you just got to go in with a mindset of what can we learn. Not how can we try and gather up together some evidence that proves the Bible here. And that's why I really like what Steve Collins has done at Tel El-Haman, is that he went in with that mindset, and then over 15 years, he's got to a point where he is confident that he has irrefutable evidence that this is actually Sodom. He started with the idea he thought it was Sodom, but he, it took him 15 years to allow the evidence to accumulate and uh, and and build his confidence on that, because I, I think where we can look foolish in the eyes of the world is when we come out with some bold statements, and then they become very easily and quickly refuted um, on a scientific basis. There are multiple dimensions in this understanding about what we talk about uh, when we discover there are archaeological evidences for Sodom and Gomorrah. One of those, Brendan, and let me just bring you into this conversation here, comes around Lot's wife. Now, famously, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back over her shoulder to see the burning of the city of Sodom. Uh, any thoughts here around Lot's wife, and, and is there any evidence for her? Yeah, I mean, if we go to Genesis 19.26, it said, but Lot's wife 
looked back as she was following behind him and turned into a pillar of salt. And again, those of us who have been to the Dead Sea, you'll see these, literally these pillars of salt that are in the water and surrounding the water. And and you sort of go, okay, that's sort of how they came to that. But when they've been excavating the site, they actually have found skeletal remains that have been coated with a, or it says visibly encrusted uh, with salt. And so we actually, they've found a skeleton that's encrusted with salt. And so we go, I I, I had always thought I looked at it and I go, okay, this is this is just some sort of metaphor, maybe, um, you know, or maybe it was some, you know, miraculous thing that that happened to Lot's wife, where God turned her into a pillar of salt. But actually, the impact of the the um, meteorite or the airburst hitting the Dead Sea, flushing all that water over the city and then encrusting some of the skeletons and some of the remains in salt. So literally, we have evidence now that Lot's wife was encrusted or covered in salt as a result of this event. Looking behind, I think we can interpret that to say she was lagging a long way behind uh, and it got caught up in the explosion, not really wanting to leave, which I think is clearly evident from the biblical account. Not really wanting to leave the city behind. Uh, that thought uh, that there was a disobedience in the woman and she looks over her shoulder and she longs to go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, her example sometimes used, uh, you know, don't choose the worldly life over salvation. Keep looking ahead. Uh, no doubt there's some, some good insight you can bring into the way we might look at that story, but then that would only be, you know, bringing out of it a, uh, you know, perhaps a morals and values story. But the, these sorts of narrative stories from the Old Testament, they do create those sorts of images, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's what we've done, in particular myself as preachers. Uh, we we do we're we're looking for how can we how can we take the message that God's trying to teach us there and translate that message into our culture and society of today. So again, here we have um, a very large, powerful, economically stable city that people want to live in. What's the cost of living in that city? Is being immoral, and and am I willing to pay the cost? To get what I want by being immoral? Well, that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I am going to take what I want, when I want, regardless of the consequences to anybody else or or, or any or any God even. I mean, it's it is actually very uh, symbolic of the sort of culture and societies that we live in the West where it's so many people just live for themselves and for the today, regardless of the consequences to anybody else. Just to enlarge this whole conversation, and listeners might be thinking, is there only one interpretation that you can bring? Uh, I know that feminists uh, have a, an argument where they say women were the collateral damage in God's destruction of Sodom. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to take you down that, pa- that path there unless you've got something to say uh, to that because it seems to be the, the, the sodomy, the homosexuality is related to the men, although the immorality of the city is mentioned even earlier back in Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 13, and uh, the actual story comes to light around Genesis 19. But So the immorality of the city 
had been building. Somehow, other people argue that maybe uh, you know women, uh, you know, women were the collateral damage of God's destruction on Sodom. But there's another dimension that I will ask you about, Brendan, and that is that inhospitality uh, is actually considered by Jesus to be very, very significant, and he even brings in the destruction of Sodom and and says. You know, don't be inhospitable because this is actually considered pretty serious before God. Any thoughts here around these different dimensions about the way we look at Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, I think when we start to, to look at this, and I've been reading up on a uh, an old archaeologist who's um, probably in his 80s or 90s now, I was listening to him talk the other day, and he was talking about how important uh, hospitality is in the in understanding the culture of the Bible. Now, when we look at Abraham and many of the other patriarchs, they were living essentially a nomadic lifestyle, and they were living in those fringe regions and you know even parts of the desert. and And if you did not, it was essential if you're a nomadic group that you must provide hospitality. We, we see the story of them, of them coming out of the desert and they're, they're brought in and they're provided with food, they're provided with water. If you do not provide hospitality, that's the word we use, but what it's actually saying, if you do not provide food and water to a person in need, you are committing them to death. So that then means that I will provide hospitality because one day somebody else will need to provide hospitality. Either either me, my son, my children, my wife, my livestock will die. So it's it's critically important, this concept of hospitality that starts to come through the Bible, even into the New Testament. The idea of hospitality is incredibly important because you are valuing someone else made in the image of God. You represent God to them. You represent salvation to them. You represent life to them. Otherwise, if you keep everything for yourself, what will happen is you'll be okay today, but tomorrow you might run out of food. You might run out of water. You might be caught in the desert and you'll need someone else to provide hospitality to you. So it's a sort of a sowing and, and reaping principle, but around the idea of hospitality. Hugely important in the Old Testament, but it doesn't stop. It flows all the way through into the New Testament as well. And when it flows into the New Testament and appears in the words of Jesus, we take a little extra notice, don't we? Because uh, in talking about that inhospitality, those words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, I'll, I'll read what they say. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. As people uh, know that scripture, then Jesus goes on to say, Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So there is a certain sense in which uh, the hospitality of people, even receiving God's word, receiving that word of the gospel, that uh, comes into play when we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. I mean, there's this. it, it revolves around trusting God. We, we can bring it back into you know our, our simple connection with God as far as giving's concerned worship through our finances concerned are we are we actually you know do we trust God or are we keeping that all to ourselves for when we have the rainy day so it's 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 just embedded within the whole mindset and that's 
am I actually going to, uh, yeah, just ultimately trust God for for my survival? Which means when God says to give, when God says to provide hospitality, when when God says to celebrate and bring the family around, when God says to give to a stranger, and you go through all the different things, ultimately that's us trusting in God and revolving around that hospitality. And some of us are good at it, and some of us struggle with it. We don't need to condemn ourselves about it. But it it does actually go back that God looks at you, looks at me, and says, you are made in the image of God. If someone's made in the image of God, and I need a cup of cold water, I give a cup of cold water. It's as simple as that. So a culture that's inhospitable uh, for the bearers of good news. Uh, I wonder who I might be drawing a long bow here, but maybe that's a part of uh, the where the judgment of God will come. You know, we talk about, you know, God uh, intervening in circumstances. We find ourselves under a little bit of extra pressure here, but not really like the 360 million people around the world who are suffering under quite heavy persecution. As the persecution of the church continues around the world, is there a message in there about that inhospita- uh, this inhospitable uh, culture that Christians find themselves in when people are not open to the gospel? Look out for the judgment of God. Is that relevant? Um, yeah, I, I think you can go down, down that path. I, I, I suppose most of the time, for me, it's really a message... For us, when we're in those inhospitable environments, okay, as, as Matthew says, sometimes just, just walk away, move on. But sometimes we're in those inhospitable environments. Does that make us inhospitable? I think we, we can't control what somebody else does, but I can control my emotions, my reaction, my response. So I think what we continue to do is we continue to show hospitality in an inhospitable environment, we continue to show the love of God, the compassion of God, that we are different to, they, to them. And I'm not saying that in a, in a egotistical or superior way. I'm just saying we have the presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit and we can share that with others. They don't. They're ignorant. They don't know. So hopefully we can bring some, some people closer to the Lord by expressing his love and compassion to them. Well, and of course, uh, you know, your mind might even go to the way we are to model hospitality and uh, Paul's words to Timothy, even around the expectations of people who are elders, uh, that they'd be hospitable people and uh, Mm. taking that hospitality to a a new depth in thinking about that. When we talk about, you know, the broad persecution that is gripping so much of the earth right now, but also Mm. contrasting with the huge growth of what's happening in Christianity on the continent of Africa and uh, what's happening in South America and the explosive growth of the church in China. Uh, God is truly at work in the world. Uh, Let me just Mm. remind you of something here, Brendan Roach. As a teenager, it was prophesied over you that you would go into all the world, the four corners of the earth, and teach the word of God and become a minister to ministers. In Mm. what you do right now, there's something being fulfilled in there, and you're taking Bible training to the masses. I wonder Mm. if you've got a few moments to just share what's happening with AXX and what's happening in Africa, as you've been over in Africa of recent times. Uh, Give us an update on the Brendan Roach story. Yeah, well, like, like all of us, we're in lockdown, particularly in Melbourne here. Uh, unlike you guys in sunny Queensland and Perth who lived your freedom life, we were in lockdown. 
Um, so we use that as an opportunity to, to build our new French courses. And cut a long story short, about a month ago, after two years of waiting and planning, we finally got to launch our French program in Africa. Uh, we attended a conference where there was meant to be 7,000 attendees. There was 15,000. Um, and that what does let me give you an example of that one church i mean that the church is just exploding in africa 95 percent of the pastors have had zero training zero nothing and but they're they you know holy spirit they're moving on they're doing great things but those those this one church in africa that hosted us and hosted the conference for us they have planted 40 churches in the last seven years 20 of those churches are in western countries Two of them are in China. Two of them are in Paris. One is in Brussels. There's a couple in Australia. One's in Perth. One's in Melbourne. Here we have a country where probably realistically they're, they're living on less than $10 a day that are sending missionaries and planting churches all around the world. When I was there, they were encouraging people to learn Arabic, to learn Indonesian. They want to plant a church in Indonesia. So they're saying to their people and their pastors there, what we want you to do is go and learn Indonesian so you can plant a church in Indonesia. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And that's one church. So they're, they're just seeing things happen. They're seeing miracles happen. They're seeing, you know, people getting saved. They're seeing church planting like never before. They, the church is just exploding. They are becoming, if I can use this word, the human resource powerhouse of the church we have the economics we have the money we have the teaching and they have the people who are willing to give their life one of the pastors there had come from a war-torn area and was going back into a war-torn area wow. <laughs> to plant a church i mean it's just phenomenal what they're doing it's it's so exciting um we're seeing a thousand trainer requests a month now about 500 of those are in French, about 500 in English. It's it's just the need is so great and they're just absolutely absorbing everything that we're giving them. What sounds so odd, no doubt, uh, for some listening into the conversation is that you've got these French courses and they're going into Africa. Of course, uh, there are a lot of French colonies uh, on the continent of Africa and so French is a widely spoken language. Uh, any other plans for other languages that you're going to be translating your AXX courses into? Yeah, well, just let me go back to that. Do you know that Kinshasa is the largest French-speaking city in the world? 18 million people. Wow. Out of all the French, 27 of the 30-something French-speaking countries of the world are found in Africa. Um, yeah, so so that's just, you know, some things that people aren't aware of about how prevalent French is in Africa. But we're, look, we're... we're we're wanting to do another year of French, but we're we're seriously praying and seeking God <laughs> for a million dollars, as you do. Um, we want to start Swahili, and there's a hundred million uh, people who speak Swahili as their first language in Africa. And again, there's even less training available for those people than there are in English or French. So God, God willing, one day we're we're believing we're. We're, we've got a plan. We know that it works. I've got the contacts in Kenya and East Africa that are ready to jump on board and work with us, really highly qualified teachers uh, whose native language is Swahili. 
And we already know that they've got connection to the internet and they can download the teachings without a problem. So, again, we're just believing God and, and we'll see what happens. A certain synergy has to develop, doesn't it, between wealthy nations and poor nations. And when you want to mm. get into starting Swahili courses for the continent of Africa, recognizing that the church is growing faster there than you can raise up pastors and knowing that mm. 95% of pastors around the developing world have zero training, uh, this is a real challenge and something that somehow or other we can't just keep our head in the sand. We've got to actually say, well, how can I participate in that? So your courses, Brendan, on AXX, A-X-X, Aussies can study those as well. I know people who've gone through your AXE training, and uh, it's fabulous. Uh, but that, that course is made available at a very low price for people who are in places that are, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic developing nations. Yeah, I mean, for, for Australians, you can do it for as little as $10 a month, and all of that money goes to supporting our, our missions work. Uh, you can have certified courses like a certificate of the Bible for $120 or $225, one cost all up front, or you can just do that for, again, $30 a month and just cancel your subscription when you finish. Do it in a month, you've got it for $30. But all of that money, reason why we've done that is all of that money goes to fund our missionary activity. And um, and we're, we're just seeing so much fruit. I can't can't tell you how excited we were. We, we just blew every expectation out of the water in Kinshasa as to what God was doing. And, and um, we've, got, we've got big plans, big vision, like most people do. But we're just very excited about where God's taking us. And suddenly, what we started five years ago doesn't seem so far-fetched and so crazy anymore. And that prophecy over you as a teenager, uh, those sorts of things, and that's a conversation for another day, but uh, there's something that yeah. happens when someone brings that prophetic word. And, you know, it's a bit controversial mm. in some, some circles, but it's something that's coming to pass in your life, and you can recognize that there are some foundations that God speaks into your heart as a young man. And as you pursue your career and your ministry and your serving, that those things come about because God is in the in the way that things are working. He's the one who's moving the pieces on a chessboard and uh, bringing everything into a way that will fulfill his purposes. Uh, Brendan Roach, just fabulous getting your insights, uh, not only around all of these issues to do with Sodom and Gomorrah and bringing some great insight, but also just to hear of what God's doing with Acts and the exp explosive growth of the church in Africa. Just wonderful. For listeners who want to connect with Dr. Brendan Roach, today you can do here is the website it's easy to access axx.global axx.global maybe you've been thinking i need to do some study myself maybe i'll start with one that might not necessarily be accredited by uh, all of the great universities but here's one you can get a certificate and get an introduction into understanding the things of god axx.global Brendan, wonderful insights. Thank you so much for sharing those with our listeners today on 2020. No worries. Thank you, Neil. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 